0: One Art, a Fiction Podcast, with Lisa Moore and Olivia Robinson.
1: Hello! Welcome to One Art, a Fiction Podcast. My name is Lisa Moore.
2: And I'm Olivia Robinson. Uh, During this podcast, we ask local writers to demonstrate different aspects of fiction writing through uh, pieces of flash fiction that they've written specifically to read aloud on this podcast. So today we're going to be talking about plot.
1: Yeah, and we're joined today by Matthew Hollett and Beth Downey, and uh, you know, plot aficionados. Did you oh, want to?
3: Aficionados? aficionados. Not even aficionados. That was a very good play on words, <laughs> so I'm happy with that. <laughs> very good. Okay, so thank you
2: both for being here today.
1: Hi. Hello. Thanks. Beth Downey is an emerging writer of poetry and fiction with forthcoming work in Hard Ticket, the anthology of, of fiction from Newfoundland being published by breakwater she's beginning doctoral f- studies at memorial university next year and she moonlights as a childbirth doula i think olivia we should get a doula in to to be our one of our uh, spotlight calls yep she enjoys rdf i mean well she's Kind of from here. So, true. And singing in the shower and feeding other people. She and her husband Scott divide their time between Winnipeg and St. John's. It's so good to have you here, Beth. Thank you so much, Lisa.
2: Awesome. And uh, Matthew is uh, Matthew Hallett is a writer and visual artist in St. John's. His work explores landscape and memory through photography, writing, and walking. His first book, Album Rock, was published in 2018 by Boulder Books. And his collection of poems about photography and seeing called Optic Nerve won the 2017 NLCU Fresh Fish Award for Emerging Writers. And he's currently working on a novel. And Thank you for being here, Matthew. Oh,
0: thanks so much. Olivia.
1: So today we're looking at plot. Okay, so we gave these guys the assignment. Please write a postcard story, 500 words wherein a mistaken identity is revealed and a true identity emerges. And and you can interpret this as subtly or as dramatically as you wish. A protagonist who once believed themselves incapable of great passion suddenly is surprised to discover they're overwhelmed by a minor titillating crush. Or, not so subtly at all, does a law-respecting, genteel protagonists discover they're capable of robbing a bank and then you had to create an epiphany and use it as a hammer to smash apart our expectations throw in lashings of suspense and surprise us so so it's an easy assignment To write in a week, sure. I thought about
0: robbing a bank for research, but then I thought that was a good idea. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about what you found hard about this, what what kind of insights you had about plot, because I think writing by starting with plot is um, it it makes you think about plot. So, what kind of what is a plot? Let's let's just talk about that. What are the steps of building a plot? How does it how does the story start?
0: For me, I I thought the assignment was quite challenging because I don't think it's not that I don't think about plot, but plot is not like my focus when I'm writing. And I'm sort of coming at fiction from, you know, writing poetry and nonfiction where plot is not nearly as important a, a thing. And so I found it really challenging. I don't know. I mean, plot is sort of like the steps of what happens in the story, but they have to be connected for it to kind of feel like a plot. So the steps have to there has to be like a cause and effect relationship, I think.
1: There's a cause and effect relationship, but what about the way time works? Yeah, it can kind of
2: jump all over, I think, depending on how the writer interprets plot.
1: But there is a, an Aristotelian arc to any story, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's what, uh, it's sort of, if you were to graph it, it's a great big rise and it reaches a, a high point and then it, it does a dip down. What, what's the first start at the bottom of that first rise? What, what would we call that?
3: Yeah, it would, I mean, it's based, I think, on the three act structure of drama where you've got a sort of exposition where you meet the characters and you're introduced to the preliminary conflicts. Then you've got rising action that builds to a climax Uh, your closing action as the the consequences of the climax unfold, perhaps minor conflicts uh, start to sort of layer on each other, and then you've got the resolution. Um, So that would be sort of your three phases where the, the central phase is both sides of the peak to the climax
1: right and so usually I think the climax comes in about three quarters into your story
3: mm. what you've
1: got is a bunch of small uh, conflicts that are building in in uh, seriousness in strength in in power uh, but they're equally weighted all the way up till we get to that or they seem to be equally, Waited. There are small wins on either side all the way up to the climax. And then at the climax, we have a moment where one side, if we want to think of it that way, uh, gains power over the other and sort of wins. Mm-hmm. Although that's a really warlike, antagonistic description of plot. There has to be tension. There has to be suspense. But when we think of Virginia Woolf, does, what did she do with plot?
2: Anything she wants, basically. (laughs) I think she,
1: well, she quite often, you know, thought of it as as a circular, you know, concentric circles, circles within Mm -hmm. circles that spread out, which would be a different kind of graph if you were going to graph your story, if you were that kind of a a writer. Um, I just want to read you a little thing that Elizabeth Bowen uh, says about plot, because I, I find this fascinating. She says, plot, essential She's actually Irish, but I'm not going to do it. I should have you read this, Beth. You have a great Irish accent when you're acting Irish parts. Plot, essential, the pre-essential. Plot might seem to be a matter of choice. It is not. The particular plot is something the novelist is driven to. It is what is left after the whittling away of alternatives. The novelist is confronted at a moment or at what appears to be a moment, actually it's an extension that may be infinite, by the impossibility of saying what is to be said in any other way. He is forced toward his plot. By what? By the what is to be said. What is what is to be said? A mass of subjective matter that has accumulated impressions, received feelings about experience, distorted results of ordinary observation and something else x this matter is extra matter it is superfluous to the non-writing life of the writer it is luggage left in the hallway between two journeys as opposed to the perpetual furniture of the rooms it is destined to be elsewhere it cannot move till its destination is known plot is the knowing of destination mm-hmm. what do you think of that, oh, I, love wow.
3: that. I think it's absolutely gorgeous Um, just Matthew what you were saying earlier about coming from poetry I I had a similar struggle when I read the prompt and it it felt to me like a prompt maybe out of genre fiction where you've got a lot of conventions about how plot works and I find that when I write um, a lot of my writing tends to be quite contemplative and most of the plot arises from from the inner life of the characters right and it's things that they think and feel and their motivations and how that prompts them to interact with their world and then of course the world kicks back and then plot in the usual sense sort of happens but it's it's as you said lisa that cause and effect relationship but i love what what bowen says there about the suitcases in the hallway and them not being able to move until you know where they've got to go that that's very much my experience
2: yeah it's super interesting to kind of be asked to write from a. Uh, prompt like this because it kind of takes you out of your comfort zone and yeah almost makes you start writing with a different mm-hmm. mindset especially if you start out writing from character or from poetry then mm-hmm. to write with plot specifically in mind is an interesting exercise i think um yeah so matthew do you want to start in and read your piece sure okay I, and i
0: tend to, i tend to veer towards description too and and like cont- contemplation like beth is saying mm-hmm. and that's one of th- thing I really like about taking Lisa's fiction classes is that she really drives home <laughs> like conflict <laughs> and you've got to put your characters in danger and I don't if Maximum
3: I peril. yeah, exactly. Says, yeah I exactly I don't know if there'd be any peril
0: at all if I if I didn't think, if I wasn't forced to think about that stuff more and it really really helps because it makes a much better story so yeah I, I found this a little tricky also just because it's so short like 500 words you know, to, to have all these, you know, character and plot and description and setting and all this stuff in 500 words is really tricky. Mm-hmm. So um, I read a little bit online about flash fiction and some things to do in flash fiction. And uh, what did you learn? Uh, well, someone suggested that and flash fiction, the ending, I think he put it like the ending sort of shouldn't come right at the end because people tend to read like a bunch of flash fiction at once. And it sort of works better if there's a little bit of space between them. And you sort of create that by having the, you know, the main dramatic ending happen a little bit before the thing ends so oh, that there there's go. a little Shagged bit it up of already.
3: Space.
0: <laughs> but I don't know if I did that either but
1: well the other thing is that the ending doesn't really come at the end right because mm-hmm. we we have the denouement which follows the the kind of epiphany usually and that is in fairy tales it's like the moment when they lived happily ever after mm-hmm. but first they got to have the the you know, the shoe slid in, the foot slid into the glass slipper and, Mm -hmm. you know, and that all the conflict resolved. So even with a novel, I wonder if the ending is at the end.
0: Yeah, well, I think what this person was getting at was that when people write flash fiction, they sort of try to chop everything that they think they don't need, because it has to be very short. And some of these flash fiction stories are like 150 words. So, you know, maybe the denouement is sort of something that people tend to chop. And he was suggesting to You know, even in a really short piece, you still need a little bit of resolution at the end.
1: Great. Okay. Yeah. Let's hear it.
0: Okay. So um, this is a very short story called Sweating It Out. There are swankier gyms in St. John's, but I go to the one at the Sheraton because I don't believe in driving to the gym. It's right across from my house. My key card gives me 24-hour access, and I often wait until late so I can collapse into bed after. Most nights, it's the only way I can sleep. Having the gym to myself is a fringe benefit. Chlorinated pool air eats away the paint, so the place always feels grungy. The potted plants seem to live off sweat and steam. I bet they never even need to water them. Since the last round of redundancies, work is one long, ongoing fiasco. It's like washing aircraft crater into a mountainside, one by one. My manager is useless, a sentient jug of Sunny D. There's a poster in his office of a cartoon apple saying, don't sweat the small stuff. I pummel my stress into the elliptical. The dreadmill is how I think of the elliptical. It's like strapping on downhill skis and walking up an escalator. A hundred years ago, it'd be considered an instrument of torture. All the machines have screens now. They play video tours so you can pretend you're jogging outdoors in a warmer corner of the world. It's usually some sun-drenched national forest in Oregon or New Zealand, a wide trail dappled with day hikers. Today, though, it's as if the elliptical can read my mood, as well as my heart rate. It plunks me down in an infernal Amazonian jungle gorge. Dark leaves flutter like bat wings over a gauntlet of boulders. Roots like wrought iron cages surge up from the forest floor. Thin waterfalls whiz like circular saws. The camera turns a corner and lopes towards a terrifying rope bridge. I try pedaling backwards, but the video only goes one way. I close my eyes. There's no audio, but I can almost hear howler monkeys in the darkness. They screech in my manager's voice. My door is always open. I hope we can get to the same page on this. On the other side of the bridge, though, the jungle illuminates. There are beams of light like leaning Roman columns. Calligraphic vines loop and curl, A speckled pink blossom as large as a stop sign blooms beside the path. I can almost smell it. Something twinges me out of my trance. Why do I smell the office? It's me. My sweat reeks of coffee. That's it. I'm done. I have to quit right now before I change my mind. I look over my shoulder to make sure I'm alone. I catch sight of myself in the mirror behind me, still trundling on the elliptical. The patch of sweat dampening my shirt is a jagged oval Swerve to one side. It looks exactly like a map of brazil i should book a flight to rio i want to visit the rainforest before Bolsonaro burns it all down i can plan the whole trip on my phone i don't even need to stop running but first freedom hey siri i say start a new email to sunny d dictating my resignation is easy i've rehearsed it so many times i make a few edits manually skim it over once then tap send cancel The email draft reassembles itself on my screen. It glares at me like a furious parent. I can't do it. I shake my head. A bead of sweat from my brow dabs the phone screen. It triggers a tap. Message sent. There's no turning back this time. It only goes one way. The video tour fades to black and loops. Roots like wrought iron cages surge up from the forest floor. I pass the same speckled pink flower. I'm jogging all the way to Brazil.
1: Wow. That is so beautiful. Oh Thanks. That is such a lovely piece. I mean, I don't even want to talk about plot. I want to talk about the piece. No. But so let's just talk for a moment about uh, about the assignment, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> your your mission was to create a false Identity,
0: right? That part I found really tricky. And what you did it, I did it. I guess.
1: How do you think you did it? I'll <laughs> tell you how I think you did it. Or, or I mean, Olivier. for me,
0: in the in the in the assignment, I, I don't like to call it an assignment, but in in the challenge, um, yes, okay, yeah, the word epiphany was mentioned, and I guess I kind of latched onto that because I like the idea of someone having this realization and and following through with it. So, I guess the mistaken identity comes about because the narrator ends up sending an email, but they they don't you know, they do it because a drop of sweat falls in the screen. And so this person is going to receive an email and it's sort of not really from them because they didn't mean to actually go through with it.
1: Yes, I mean, it's a a beautiful little uh, sort of narrative um, trick. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, beneath that, uh, beneath that little drop of sweat, which is not really the narrator but does (laughs) the action, there is also these two warring factions inside the narrator who is this business uh, office drone, but also, mm-hmm. like, desperately questing hero, battling, you know, like, almost um, Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of battling through the bats and the leaves to to get to freedom.
2: <laughs> are those, like, actually, are there screens on? Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah I went to the gym at the Sheridan a bunch last winter, and this is kind of where that came from. That's so and, neat. I've yeah. never seen oh it's really fun actually
2: be like a virtual reality
3: yeah you're just you're you're running you know
0: on the treadmill the elliptical and then the screen plays like kind of a video tour of some usually it is some national park so they're often in like portugal or greece or some really beautiful place sometimes you're just like walking towards the eiffel tower in a city but it's usually outdoors and uh yeah
3: i i absolutely loved that line about oh my god it's me i smell like the office (laughs) like preserve us um (laughs) Because there's almost a, an identity issue right there, a kind of identity crisis. It's like, ha- have I just been absorbed by, you know, the the biome in which I spend most of my time, like mm-hmm. my workplace? Am I that office drone now? Or am I the person sweating Brazil? You know, like, just, <laughs> there's a huge contradiction there.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, you were talking about, uh, both of you were talking about the, you know, loving to write, um, Beautiful imagery, really. And mm. there is a tons of beautiful imagery here. Mm-hmm. But it is in service to the journey that the character is making, you know. Uh, one of the, uh, just if I can just very briefly quote Elizabeth Bowen again, she says, um, A story involves action, action towards an end not foreseen by the reader, but also toward an end which, having been reached, must be seen as to have been from the start inevitable. Mm-hmm. Well, we all know that, that the there has to be surprise for the reader, but it has to be inevitable. Then she says, action by whom? The characters, action in view of what? And because of what? The what is to be said. What about the idea that the function of action is to express characters? This is wrong, she says. The characters are there to provide action. Each character is created and must only be created as to give his or her action, um, rather the contribution mm. to the novel verisimilitude. So, you know, I too, uh, when I'm writing, want to be writing characters. That's all I care about. And I often think that character and the formation of character is plot. Mm-hmm. But she's saying, who cares about characters? Like, it's about the, the movement forward.
2: Didn't she also say, though, that character is plot? Does she? <laughs> no, well, didn't she say in something else? I think she this, probably does. She kind of is like contradicting herself now in this.
1: Well, can, can you Which read it again? Just the
3: line about where she says, no, it's not this, it's that. The bit that ends with verisimilitude.
1: Uh, she says, what about the idea that the function of action is to express the characters? This is wrong.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: the characters are there to provide the action. Each character is created and must only be created to give his or her action verisimilitude.
3: Yeah, and I, I think that's in keeping with what you were suggesting, Olivia, where, yeah. where the characters are the action. Because mm-hmm. if, if you think of action as being there to express characters, it's where you're making up events with this sort of higher idea that like a certain happening should parallel a thing about your character that you want to express. Like if a really passionate character has to go through a fire, it's like, well, that's a bit cheesy. Whereas if the really passionate character knocks over a hurricane lamp and starts a fire, that happened because mm-hmm. the character is who they are. They give the plot verisimilitude. hmm Right, yeah, that makes
0: sense. I think the discussion around plot often kind of, there's a back and forth between people who think of fiction as genre fiction, which is very plot-driven, and people think of, who think of literary fiction, which is very character-driven. And so it makes sense to me that in, we're talking about literary fiction mostly, And it makes sense that the plot would kind of come from the actions of the characters. Whereas in something like genre fiction, I just think immediately of sci-fi where the characters are like responding to an alien invasion or Mm -hmm. some big external thing. And the plot comes more from like the plot is sort of pushing the characters around. Whereas in, in literary fiction, I think the characters are the ones that are kind of emanating the plot because they're responding to each other and
1: right i mean i think your piece in a way is a parody of genre fiction because <laughs> the character is battling the jungle and all these vines and mm-hmm. all of that and the wild the nature which of course is one of those fundamental uh conflicts that appear in plot you know human versus nature uh, but <laughs> really what is going on is that this is a screen and that the yeah. characters in Absolutely no physical danger, but but moral peril. Mm-hmm. So you're using all the trappings of a, a adventure story, but in fact, it's a psychological
0: internal.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so funny when he tries pedaling backwards because he's afraid of the going <laughs> over the rope bridge and it's well, like, was really oh yeah, wait. Because
0: like, they could easily design it so that if you pedal backwards, the video went backwards. But of course they don't because no one would do that. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: would... Because they'd be sued because you'd have all kinds of people flying left, right and center off the yeah. elliptical thingamajig.
2: Oh my gosh, that's too funny we want to get Beth to read hers? Yes, we okay. do.
3: Okay. All right, Beth, let's hear yours. Right on. All right, so this piece is called Mint Julep. It was a Wednesday, and I was watering plants on the fire escape, smoking. The begonias were leggy. The croton was browning at the tips, and assorted herbs and pots, particularly one rosemary plant in a mulch of butts, had all but done away with themselves for shame. I had nearly made up my mind to join them by throwing myself over the railing watering can and all when my eyes returned to the pot of mint. Tall and thick, almost arrogant, it flourished amid the fire escape's otherwise total ennui. I'd been making mint juleps with it, as this was the only thing I absolutely knew mint to be good for, and the plant in turn offered me plenty of practice, such that I was now something of a connoisseur. I knew the Elsie ladies by name, and they, in what I took to be a show of affection, called me Jack. Though my name is actually Jim. I glared at the mint. Its undignified liveliness. Every leaf an almost effulgent green, and I knew it was mocking me. Go on then, it said, purple flowers waving gently over the rail. Off you go. I stared, beginning to feel the weight of the watering can, that horticultural millstone dragging on my shoulder. I put the watering can down and ripped off a bunch of mint. You are "'Just like your mother,' I said, and went inside for the jack. "'She had been almost impossibly beautiful. "'A painter with dark hair and eyes, and maybe I deserved that. "'What had begun as a torrid love affair with, I must tell you, really fantastic sex, had ended badly. "'She called me trifling.' She said I'd let myself go, but if four nights a week, stocking shelves at Dominion to keep Her Majesty in canvas doesn't earn a man the occasional indulgence, then I don't know what the fuck. And if i dropped the odd course to keep up my GPA, what was that to her? She was a prude, anyway. Man does not live by missionary alone, certainly not at once a week, so pardon the fuck out of me if I did have a second helping of ice cream the once or twice. Three months of that was how it was, backbiting and low blows and the last of it was that here I smoked, poisoning her plants. I was liberal, jackwise. Muddling managed, I returned to the fire escape with its folding canvas chair to contemplate my cowardice. I was about two ounces deep in julep when, out of the great calloused beyond, came Fred. He was a calm, blue-eyed, righteously fat tortoiseshell fellow. Hello, I said. And who doesn't love you, you little wretch? He blinked at me, padded along the rail, fur belly swinging, and jumped in my lap. Well, hi! Oh my goodness, Bella! Yeah! Hello! Hello! And that was it. Our connection was instant. Mystical, even. We were like a Leonard Cohen song, and Fred was the tomcat of mercy. Familiar? Sympathetic, Fred understood things. Fred had more con- unconditional love in him than the entire species of woman. He even had a taste for juleps to blackguard. So I began letting him have the muddle at the bottom of my glass when he came round. Our friendship lasted four days. Sunday, in the elevator, a neighbor was clucking away about the drunken she-cat she'd found zigzagging up the West Alley, and how the man from the pound had said it was a crime of ignorance, probably. Sure, did you know a tablespoon of alcohol can kill a cat? Nearly put her in a coma, is what he said. Well, I never knew, but who's after giving strong drink to a cat, anyway? Sin. She would never have said those things if she had known. Known there was a family member in the lift. I went straight to my apartment, locked the door, and bawled. Out on the fire escape, I pulled the pot of mint into my lap and combed its foliage with my fingers, missing his fur, missing his ears. That's when I saw the plastic label still wedged in the dirt at the base of the plant. Napita Kataria, it said. Catnip. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Beth. That was
2: fantastic. I love that the reveal in this piece comes like right at the end but i noticed the second time that i read it there is a little hint like towards
3: the beginning with the purple flowers Mm, well, I mean, bo- see, the, the thing is, catnip and mint are from the same family. They're related species. Oh. Right. And they both grow purple flowers. They look very, very similar.
1: Does mint have purple flowers, It too? does if you oh. let it flower, which
3: you shouldn't, because then you're not going to get any more mint. Right. But.
1: Okay. Now, cool. I did not know, because Olivia Maybe. and I were, clue, clue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, we were wrong. Yeah.
3: yeah. At <laughs> we least were... I think it does. I'm doubting myself now, do but I'm pr- d- fairly sure. No, it might. No,
1: you're, it sounds like you know what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, stay tuned. I've got a wild bit of mint <laughs> growing that I
1: haven't in the front. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful and funny and gentle and sweet. It's lovely, lovely, Beth. Why don't you tell us what your thoughts were on plot? Like, what were you working with as you were going through? What were you thinking about?
3: That's a great question. I have no idea. True, truly, like, like Matthew was saying, I tend to start with character. But I think maybe what, I should not say this, because the comparison's just going to end me. Um, I, I had recently been to a reading by Kevin Barry, And he's just so good. When he reads, he has this incredible sense of uh, what the characters are really thinking or really saying versus what they're saying with their words. And I was so amazed by how much plot was conveyed just in his tone and the way he was able to show you that the characters were sort of prevaricating a lot of the time. And so I wanted to try and play with that, to try and play with um, reveals and mistaken identity to do with, like, willful blindness or, or a, a person's sort of self-absorption. And I don't know where the plants came from, honestly. I think, I think maybe I just realized that something this short, I was thinking about the restrictions of, of a flash fiction piece, and I thought, okay, third person takes too much time, you need too much world building. I think it's got to be first person, you need that immediacy. So that the reader gets everything right as it's happening with the character. And I think that combination of things, the the sort of limited mindset and the limited narrator kind of got me started.
1: That's interesting. You both did first person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm just wondering now if our our other flash fictions were first person. Heidi's was, wasn't it? You yeah, know,
2: it's... I think they all were, actually.
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, that's it. We're not. Our next one is point of, <laughs> uh, is, is point of view. So they're not going to be allowed to do first. for yeah, Exactly. There, there you go. Now we shagged we've... it up for the rest of them. We yeah. discovered the loop. Yes, uh, the the easy out. <laughs> <laughs> the loophole. Yeah. So, well, let's, let's just talk about how the um, conflict rises. Where's the conflict?
2: Um, I would say kind of towards the end when the cat appears. But there's a little hint of it I guess earlier than that but I like how there's like the two mis- kind of two mistaken identities that like the LC ladies are calling him Jack because he makes these mint juleps for them but that's as in m- the alcohol right the, yeah. yes yeah like Jack yeah. Daniels but then that's not actually who he is and then we also get the mistaken identity of the
3: plant mm. so i like yeah and the they, cat and the cat the yeah. cat is well, you find out the cat was female later on it's a she cat oh, going down the alley and he had thought it was a tomcat yeah All right. the cat doesn't die does it well, no a close but no Good. coma he, can't try, he <laughs> tried he tried his best yeah gets adopted and lives a happy life i and think it's
1: and- hilarious because i suspect that beth couldn't kill the cat off really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she wouldn't do that to me
3: I, I will leave you in your blissful ignorance. Yes,
1: <laughs> I just want to. Um, I just want to talk to you a, a little bit about what E.M. Forster. Little quote from E.M. Forster, and then maybe uh, Olivia, you have a, a bit of. You want to read something oh, yes. from? Yeah. Deborah Levy right yeah but uh you know famously E.M. Forster talks about plot and he talks about the fact that he uh it's a shame really that we have to be taken up with plot you know like because it's so gauche you know (laughs) he suggests that it only like the Neanderthals sitting around the fire with their bludgeons (laughs) want the story to move and they don't want any uh, (laughs) um They don't want any nuance, but he. Uh, so he asks three men. I think they're men. Three people. What they what they want from a story, and mm-hmm. and the third person, one person says, "What does a novel do? Why?" Tell a story, of course, and I've no use for it if it didn't. I like a story. Very bad taste on my part, no doubt. <laughs> but I like a story. You can take your art, you can take your literature, you can take your music, but give me a good story. I like a story to be a story and mind. My, my, my wife is the same. And the third man says in his sort of drooping, regretful voice, yes, oh dear, yes. A novel tells a story. And then, uh, you know, because he thinks it's a shame that a novel has to. Why can't it just meander in the beauty of the language? And then Forrester sums this up by saying, oh, dear, yes, a novel does tell a story. That is the fundamental aspect without which it could not exist. That is the highest factor common to all novels. And I wish that it were not so, that it could be something different, melody or perception of truth not this low atavistic form. But, I mean, the truth is, the truth, of course, and I think Forrester's being a little ironic, is that there is no point of a story unless we have those things, perception and mm. truth and mm-hmm. character. And So even though we do need the reader to turn the page, we do need that low atavistic form where we're... we're freaking going to fill it up with all the beauty and and truth that we can squeeze in there.
3: Yeah, it it just sounds like a false dichotomy to me the idea that that it, you know, might be one or the other instead of both. Um, I I am a closet fan of high fantasy. Give me anything with dragons and I will be yours forever. Keep and, that, jot
1: that down someone. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and uh, I'll I'll be so recently I just I've been really paying more attention actually than I ever had before as to how the fantasy authors that I really love are doing what they're doing because so many of them are exactly what you're talking about in that Forrester quote they're just good stories there's love and adventure and slaying dragons and, and fascinating characters and also with the best writers like say Patrick Rothfuss there is contemplation and perception and and the soulful and and sort of thinking about you know big themes i mean even maybe religious themes um there's it's kind of it's got the whole package if you have the the bright-eyed innocence i guess to follow along
2: yeah, I kinda wondered if there was a little like nod, to Harry Potter, in your story there that you oh, might really not have managed to not where. have noticed. I'm curious. But I uh when you said muddling
3: managed. Ah uh, yes, that yep, that, that happened. That's real yeah, just okay. managed. You're yeah. right. <laughs> it is
1: what you do to, to you know make a good cocktail probably some cocktails mojitos also mm-hmm. use yes. mint mm-hmm. <laughs> my fave yes but um, not
2: jack daniels i don't think
1: oh no. well, goodness <laughs> <Christ>. <laughs> you know this is one of the things i find exciting about fiction you learn who the experts are yeah
2: <laughs> i make a good mojito
1: yeah, we good were wrong style. about the mint though yes <laughs> we were we didn't we've know learned. it flowered no we've okay learned something. olivia
3: what's what's going on oh, with, i think uh, matt's trying to jump in there oh i oh. just
0: wanted to jump in and say um I, there are certainly plotless novels too i mean some of my favorite books are are kind of weird experimental novels i really like nicholson baker's the mezzanine which is basically the entire novel takes place with a man going up an escalator thinking about things like he thinks about shoelaces and and weird little quibbles and and it's it's still a novel and it's it's interesting to see those kinds of experiments like can i write a novel without plot or well you just let me the waves lisa just let me the virginia wolf book the waves which is, you know, similarly sort of meandering and, and mm-hmm. strange. And I, I kind of want someone to write a plotless novel with a dragon in it just to see if it can. <laughs> <laughs> Challenge accepted. Crap, okay. less
3: tape but, but with the dragon. You, you know, you awesome. mentioned
0: Kevin Barry and he wrote a book,
1: uh maybe you know the name of it. I can't remember the name of it. Um about the Beatles, about John Lennon going to an island which he actually did and he does scream therapy and it is an entirely experimental novel.
3: Beetleborg, but, I think I think I think that's beetle, what it's called. Beetleborg. I thought it was just no is that not right? I, don't, I, s- I thought it was like one Beetlebone. Beetle but beetle bo- yep, that's it. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and
1: anyway, it is the bizarrest novel, and it is voice. It's really voice-driven, just like the Virginia Woolf, in a strange way. Mm-hmm. But it is a journey. It's a journey to this island, and it's a journey through the sort of psycho- uh, psychoanalytic weirdness that he goes through. And the mezzanine is also a journey up the escalator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely. know, there's there's uh, there's movement. There's movement happening. It's true that in Both instances, it's the the action is boiled down to the barest. But if I may, just one last time, go back to uh, Elizabeth Bowen, who clearly I've been reading nobody else but. (laughs) Like, she talks about plot tension being a rope that you pull tight between two hands, and the tension across the piece of rope or string has to be equal all the way across that piece of rope. So... This is the thing it doesn't matter if you're you know uh, bludgeoning someone to death or if you're breaking a teacup it you have to the characters have to convince us that the that what is at stake, whether it's the teacup or the skull, is tr- tr- of tremendous importance to the characters. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it's that importance that imbues the story, even if it's just going up an escalator and remembering the trajectory of how shoelaces have been manufactured over all of history. You know, it has to be imbued with that uh, intensity. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, definitely. One, one of my favorite examples of that, where you have to bring a, a proportional sense of, or perhaps a disproportionate sense of importance to sometimes simpler or minor things is uh, Susan Glassbell's play Trifles, where you've got these, it, it's, a, it's a sort of a closed box play, it just takes place in a kitchen, the one room, and it's these two farm wives who have gone over to a neighbor's house to collect some things for her because she's been arrested, and they, it, it's a murder mystery basically, but they unraveled a whole plot just by analyzing the particular disarray of her kitchen, you know, the fact that the bread was left out, or the car- canaries not in the cage, and it, it's and the the title says it all, right? It's called trifles, um, but death is at hand, and it, it's really excellent. Yes, well,
1: I, I was going to say in your piece, only a cat dies, but. I know that I would just lose so many listeners. Mm. That. <laughs> mm-hmm. In no. fact, maybe the whole room would evacuate. <laughs> yeah. It could be, yeah. I could lose my co-host.
3: Yes. Well, I didn't know I was I'm actually I've only just recently learned that it's kind of one of the cardinal sins in fiction that a lot of publishers will tell you you cannot kill a dog, like <laughs> animals are sacrosanct. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I guess I can understand why, but it's something I did not know until recently. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's There's a website. I know. I was just going to say, does the dog dog die? die? I think it's like
0: doesthedogdie.com where you can like look up movies and it will tell you whether or not a dog (laughs) dies because people are like intensely passionate about not watching movies where a dog dies. Yes. Well, I
1: wrote a piece for a educational school textbook thing and it was about a a, a dog did die. It was about a dog being put down. It was about death. Uh, I mean, and they told me to take it out. And I said, no, this is for grade nine. They're doing the Holocaust. I think they can handle this dog being put down. It was an act of mercy. You know, I think I think we underestimate the power of children to understand big life themes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it interesting in both of your pieces how kind of the, um, I guess, turning point was very close to the end, which might be a product of the pieces having to be shorter. Um but then in this um novella Hot Milk by Deborah Levy um which is like mm, just over 200 pages, I think the like turning point also occurs kind of pretty close to the end, like in the third to last chapter. So I'm just going to read a little bit of that, I guess. So, by the time we were on the road again, the clock on the higher car was positioned at 8.05, the temperature at 25 Celsius, my speed 120 kilometers per hour. A decaying Ferris wheel stood abandoned in the desert like an open mouth, a last, cheap laugh. I stopped the car on the hard shoulder. Let's have a look at the sunset, I said. There was no sunset to look at, but Rose did not seem to notice. Out came the wheelchair and 15 minutes of heavy lifting. Rose leaned on my arm and then on my shoulder as she lowered herself into it. What are you waiting for, Sophia? I'm just getting my breath back. A white lorry was making its way toward us in the distance. It was loaded with tomatoes grown under plastic on the sweltering desert slave farms. I wheeled my mother into the middle of the road, and I left her there. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So the mother does not get hit by the car, but... (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler. (laughs) Spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) But still, I think that's like the turning point where uh, where the protagonist of this uh, novella, Sophia, kind of... Yeah, realizes the direction that her life has to take when she gets back home. Um, Olivia. Yes, should I?
1: Is that my copy?
2: No, it's not. <laughs> this is mine, I promise. Have you lost yours again? I have, yes.
1: Um, <laughs> no, this is my brand new one. Yes, I read that book too. And I, like when you said I'm going to read the the climax, I knew immediately. And it's just, I knew that was the section you were going to read because it is you know, just completely, inarguably, the turning point of the novel. I just kind of wanted
2: to explain a little bit about the setting so that people aren't completely confused, Um, because they're in Spain uh, trying to figure out why her mother can walk sometimes and can't walk other times. So they've gone to see this doctor, and, like, they're from the UK, but um, they're staying in Spain, and Sofia, the protagonist, is kind of... She works at kind of a dead-end job at a cafe and is kind of floundering and trying to figure out what her life will be like when she gets back. And I think that moment that I read is kind of the moment she decides that she has to change something when she gets back home.
1: Yeah, and it's Mm -hmm. it's a very kind of um, codependent relationship between Mm -hmm. this mother and daughter. And it becomes essential that the daughter distance herself from the mother now
2: yeah. leaving the mother in the middle of a highway yeah. with a lorry it's probably not the best idea <laughs> <laughs>
1: but it is definitive decision to yes and wrestle her life back
0: definitely so does she do that in an attempt to sort of like force the mother into a situation where she has to try to walk I don't yes i think okay. so
2: because like throughout the entire novella she like like they have this car for almost the entire time and sometimes the mother drives it oh. and sometimes the daughter drives it so the daughter it's like frustrated with her mother for like basically sometimes walking and sometimes being able to drive and then sometimes mm-hmm. just saying no push me around in the wheelchair oh, okay so um yeah i think that was kind of a moment of like okay walk now or else you're going to yeah, wow.
3: get yeah well it's a lot like uh sort of that that classic thing where a dad throws the kid into the water and says figure it out yeah <laughs> swim now <laughs> or yeah, exactly I love that that turning moment is the, the metaphor that prefaced that bit of plot where she described the, the rotting Ferris wheel as an open mouth. Mm-hmm. This idea of being poised to make a statement, which just it really frames it beautifully. And the way it kind of self sabotages because the Ferris wheel is rotting and it's a cheap laugh, this sort of self satire is like, ah, yeah. gorgeous.
2: <laughs> it's so good. Deborah Levy's a yeah, great author.
1: I think we've done plot. I think so. We've cracked it now. That's the last word on the matter. We'll never write anything that isn't taught as a piece of rope between two fists again. Indeed.
2: We're all set. So thank you both for being on the show with us today. And uh, before we go, we uh, wanted to mention a couple other great podcasts. And then we have a quick segment at the end as well. So... There's A flahulik with Mary Dalton um, and The Academic and the Activist with Amanda Bittner and Jenny Wright. And Riddle Fence has also done a really great podcast and also Lisa's own State of the Arts podcast. And the Writers Alliance of Newfoundland also has uh, their own podcast,
1: right? We're just calling out all the podcasts oh, that, that, that are awesome. like fun to listen to. Yep. <laughs> coming out of uh, and Shelf Esteem.
2: Yes, uh, Trudy Morgan Cole. Trudy
1: Morgan Cole, and gosh, there's probably a thought they're proliferating like like mint. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) very exciting.
2: Very good, awesome. So uh, we'll
1: be right back with uh,
2: our final segment, which is the favorite fiction of people with wild jobs report. So stay tuned.
0: You're listening to One Art, a fiction podcast with Lisa Moore and Olivia Robinson.
2: Hello? Hello? Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello? Hi. Yay! So this segment uh, is called The Favorite Fiction of People with Wild Jobs. I'm talking with Rob Landridge, who's a geophysicist and going to ask him a bit about his job and uh, talk about a book that's meaningful to him. So thanks, Rob. Okay. And uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about what you do, what it means to be a geophysicist.
4: <laughs> well, I, I studied geology and physics at university and did graduate work in it. And then I, I went to work for a guy that I met at grad school at U of T, and um, he was developing electromagnetic instrumentation, and uh, I've spent probably the last 40-odd years um, looking all over the world for mostly nickel, copper, um, a little bit of uranium, some oil, some water, but lots of different minerals, but mainly nickel.
2: Cool. So where have you uh, traveled to do this type of work?
4: Well, I spent a fair bit of time in Labrador in the 90s um, with the Voise Bay Rush, and um, but I've worked in almost everywhere in the world that they mine nickel. So Scandinavia, Norway, Finland, and, uh, and Sweden. And I've worked in Russia. Um, I've worked in Spain and Portugal, Japan, China, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, Australia, quite a few places I've been, been lucky to, to travel quite a bit internationally.
2: Awesome. Sorry, Lisa's writing down uh, questions for me here.
1: <laughs> I just want to know what um, you know, what it was like in those heady days in Labrador when you were... It was a very, I think, you know, a lot of people made a lot of money very, very quickly. And how did that... How was it?
4: I think in the most of the money was made fairly early. Um, like if you got in on the ground floor of it, then um, there was quite a bit of money made. Um, after that, there there was a lot of money and a lot of a lot of work. Like it provided employment for a lot of people, but like in any rush, um, some of the money was kind of well spent and some of it wasn't. Uh, but um, there was was a fair bit of money made, and you can see that in some of the some of the larger homes around St. John's these days.
2: So uh, I also asked you to. Choose a book, I guess, that was meaningful to you that you could talk about. Uh, So, which book did you choose?
4: So, um, the book I chose was Undertow by Thomas Rendell Curran. Um, So, when I moved to St. John's, uh, twelve or thirteen years ago, I I picked it up as it was a local it was a local book, and
0: what I really enjoyed about it was that it
4: was it was set after the Second World War, but Pre Confederation, um, so it gave me a bit of a taste of of um, Saint John's at a at a time that I really didn't know much about. So St., the Saint John's when it wasn't attached to, when when Newfoundland wasn't attached to to Canada, um, and also part of it took I was living on Leslie Street, and part of it took place in a house on Leslie Street that that. Uh, pretty much matched the house I was living in so I, I wasn't wasn't even sure if I was living in the house that was part of the book
2: That's really cool. <laughs> it must have been a very immersive uh, experience for when you first moved to St. John's
4: Yeah, it, it really was. It was kind of interesting and I mean it was nice to, to the places that it described are all parts of uh, downtown and and the older parts of St. John, so they all still exist as well.
2: What was it called again?
4: It's called Undertow, um, and it's a a mystery, um, and in, an Inspector Eric Stride is the the main character, and there's a there's a couple more novels that were published. I I read both of those as well, and have shared them with friends back in 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 St. John's here and in Ontario as well, and they've all. Always enjoyed the the They're a good read.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for agreeing to do this.
4: Okay.
1: Thanks. Bye.
4: Okay. See you later.
1: Olivia, that was just like another really, I think, fantastic uh, podcast. We had such great pieces of fiction there and um, such a great, uh, like, dip into Boise's Bay and Leslie Street. Yes.
2: Really awesome. Uh, So uh, thank you to Hans and uh, everyone here at CHMR. And, uh, next week we're going to be talking about point of view, uh, and we're not really sure who our guests are yet. So we'll do that part next (laughs) time.
3: Thanks, Hans.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to One Art, a fiction podcast with Lisa Moore and Olivia Robinson.